Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is August the 22nd, 2021, and how things changed six months ago. Uh, the world was a quite different place, at least in America. Donald Trump was uh, arguing that we essentially had to defund or if not close down the American Postal Service. Uh, people were arguing that his attack on the Postal Service was an attack on the Constitution, democracy and racial equality. Others were suggesting that he was quite literally trying to destroy the post office. Um, some suggested, uh, as in Politico, that the attack on the post office could backfire, Trump's attack, that is. I'm not sure if it did backfire, but Donald Trump isn't around today, and the post office remains one of the central institutions in American life. So I guess, in a sense, the post office beat Donald Trump. But what are the origins of the American Post Office and the Postal Service, particularly in the West. Uh, we have a really interesting new book out, Paper Trails, The U.S. Post and the Making of the American West by a young uh, Denver-based historian, Cameron Blevins. Uh, Cameron, did Donald Trump lose to the post office? Was this the, the great event that resulted in the destruction of his presidency and the victory of uh, Joe Biden? Right. The, the revenge of the mailman in uh, the presidential election 2020. Uh, no, I don't think we can uh, attribute Donald Trump's loss to, uh, to the U.S. postal system. Uh, you, your book, uh, in all seriousness, is a really um, interesting take on essentially the, the colonization of the West and how it was incorporated into the United States. Uh, you begin the book with a handwritten letter uh, from 1864 uh, by somebody I think called C.M. Thompson. What's the significance of this letter? Why did you begin the book with a handwritten letter? Uh, this is going to sound like a pretty uh, strange way to start a book, but it is uh, the most boring letter you could possibly imagine. Uh, it is basically two sentences long, it's half a page, and it is one government official writing to another one uh, that he had left his overcoat when he was on his touring visits uh, and that the other government officials should feel free to use it. Uh, so the question is, why am I starting with a completely inconsequential letter uh, between two people, uh, neither of whom were, to be honest, particularly significant historically? And the reason why I'm using this letter and why I find it so fascinating is that to understand it and the fact that they're able to send it, you have to understand the larger context of the mail at this time. It's the middle of the Civil War. One of these men is writing from uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, and the letter has to travel 400 miles away to the outskirts of Anglo-American settlement in Dakota territory. And it's going through 400 miles of land that even a few months ago had been in kind of open warfare, uh, specifically uh, Dakota uh, rebellion against uh, American forces there. It's extremely bloody warfare to the point where Abraham Lincoln had to dispatch Union troops to this area of the country again during the Civil War. 
But despite that, one of these guys is able to send this letter again with nothing important in it whatsoever, 400 miles away, knowing that it's going to get there. And that kind of opens up a question of how and why were so many Americans at the time able to do this, right? We shouldn't take for granted the fact that this person can send what is the equivalent uh, of a text message today uh, and do so kind of without thinking or without even remarking on the fact that it is quite uh, incredible to be able to do that. And so that uh, is a window into thinking about the larger network of post offices, mail routes, and this infrastructure, this government infrastructure that connected all of these people uh, at the time and how it spread and operated in the, uh, specifically in the Western United States. Uh, Cameron, one of the nice things about your new book, Paper Trails, is it's not just a book. Um, you've, you've used a lot of digital sources and you had this amazing um, uh, Gossamer network um, source, which, is, which people can find on, on, on the internet, in which you take uh, your viewer or your reader through a series of maps of the United States um, showing the growth uh, of these um, uh, of the post office. But one of the interesting things I, I thought about the book is it's not the standard narrative of a strong state disciplining the unruly West. Uh, it's more complicated than that, isn't it? It's, it? It reflects the decentralized nature of the West and how the West in many ways, in terms of its political and socioeconomic infrastructure, is very different, uh, certainly from Europe and even from the East Coast. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think, at least in my head, when I think about something like the strength of federal government or federal institutions. Typically, you can think of it in terms of, let's say, military might. And in the West, the military was quite strong. It had a really large army presence, predominantly uh, fighting wars of conquest against Native people. But then also on the flip side, uh, you think of bureaucratic capacity. So do you have strong institutions with you know, civil, civil servants able to administer a lot of different things for the government? And instead, what I found in the West was something a little bit different with the post, actually quite different. The vast majority of the places in the West where the post office operated, it was not these civil servants, full-time government employees. It was a local store owner, exactly like that, uh, who was being paid a very small commission, you know, maybe 12 or 20 bucks a year by the federal government to essentially hand letters to uh, his, his or her neighbors or temporary contracts with stagecoach companies to carry the mail. There's not this permanent, uh, permanent government infrastructure there. And my first instinct at that would be, well, that's kind of a sign of a weak state or a state that doesn't have much of a presence in the area. But that's where the digital mapping comes into play because once you put on a map all of these tens of thousands of post office locations and the ability of this network to expand really, really quickly into all sorts of distanced, remote areas, you start to get a sense for this isn't a weak state. This is one that is operating under a much different model. And in fact, it's this kind of uh, semi-privatized nature, even in an unstable network, that is in fact making it so powerful in the West because it is able to, again, extend lines of communication to distant places, uh, despite not having, and in fact, maybe because it's not having this permanent, permanent government workforce.
Yeah, and uh, one of the things, the one of the the diagrams in your book that brings this out most clearly is uh, this 1884 uh, chart of the most common occupations of postmasters, uh, general store, livestock, justices of the peace. What you suggest in the book is there were very few full time postmasters. They were doing other things. They were to use a, a contemporary Silicon Valley term, multitasking. Right. Or I was I was afraid you were gonna say the gig economy, which it's it's yeah, uh, there are well, actually I'm sure you could fit well. the gig economy in here somewhere, but you always Right, can. right. We'll have some more uh, buzzwords there. Uh, but yeah, so then that, that's the that's the piece of this that really surprised me. Uh, and again, looking at the maps here, uh, one of the things that really struck me was not just how many post offices there were and how fast they expanded, but also how quickly they often disappeared. We tend to think today of a government post office as a standalone building with salaried you know, employees wearing uniforms, and it's there, right? It's your local post office. Uh, whereas the ones I was looking at, they would open up for a couple months at a time, they'd disappear, they'd close, they'd reopen, they'd shut down permanently. And trying to figure out what was going on there, like how is this happening, led me to understand that the workforce behind it is completely different. You do have these private business owners uh, basically taking a public service, grafting it onto their existing private business. And because of that, it's a really unstable, uh, unstable system, not just in terms of post offices closing, but oftentimes who is running the post office changes really rapidly. It's a highly politicized position. It's uh, the post office department uh, was run by the executive branch. So anytime a presidency changed from one party to the other, the postmaster general appointed by the president was able to remove tens of thousands of postmasters across the country, say Republican postmasters, and then install democratic ones. Instead. So as always, Cameron, we need historians to remind us that things really never change. <laughs> Some things change a little bit, I'd say. But yes, that one is uh, that one is certainly the politicization of the post. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that history. I was sorry struck with in your book was how much more advanced America was in terms of its postal infrastructure. Here we have uh, an image of, of, of 1889, where America is way ahead in terms of uh, pieces of mail transmitted. And here we have a picture uh, in 1889 of the, the post office is still primarily in the East, but growing in the West. Why was America so much more advanced than Europe? Was it because of the geography of the country? It's partially a function of geography. So it's a very large geographic area. Um, and tied into geography is a couple different things that made the United States different from other countries. One was a strong commitment from the nation's founding uh, to provide universal mail service. So no matter where you lived, the federal government That's had an M -A -I -L, overarching- M-A-I-L, not M-A-L-E, right? Exactly, uh, probably, probably not that as much, but providing a universal, uh, providing universal mail service no matter where you lived or moved to. And that was one thing when that uh, when the United States was a collection of 13 states kind of hugging the Eastern seaboard, that turns into something very different when you have a continental country spanning 3000 miles from coast to coast. And so the federal government is still having this commitment to you know, establish mail routes, to establish post offices in these communities where people are moving to, but the implications of that mean that you need thousands, tens of thousands of post offices and mail routes to supply them. 
And so European countries uh, do not, a lot of them do not necessarily have the same commitment to an expansive universal postal system. Uh, and they're oftentimes run uh, in a much different way. They're run uh, to, uh, from a centralized standpoint where they're very carefully considering where to put new post offices, you know, where to put new mail routes. The United States is not doing that. Startup America then, uh, Cameron, has always been a, a startup nation. Uh, there is, of course, a dark side to this. Um, it's given. Um, you have a section in the book, Geography and State Power. You say, what is the state and how does it exercise power? And you remind us that um, the, the part of the expansion of the post office was linked to settler colonialism uh, and its uh, successful attempt to exterminate or remove indigenous peoples. Where is the dark side of the post office expansion in America in the late 19th century? So it's vitally important to remember that the Western United States at the time is not empty. It is not just virgin soil that's being occupied by white people. Uh, it's being actively... this map where this is a exactly. map because there's no post offices, but there really were people here, right? Right. And that green area on that map right there is land that has, is still occupied and has not yet been ceded by Native people in the West. Okay. Uh, and so this process of uh, seizing indigenous land, oftentimes exterminating or forcibly expelling and removing native people onto government reservations, that is one piece of the puzzle. But what I was thinking of, and I don't know if you've traveled much in, the, in a lot of the Western United States, there's a lot of places in the West where quite frankly, it's kind of hard to live there. And it's not exactly like uh, there are parts of you know, Wyoming where everyone's just kind of jonesing to go there and move there. And so my question was, how then did so many millions of people so quickly and so readily occupy these remote, often really inhospitable places in the West, this land that's been basically been plundered from Native people? And what I realized was reading these letters and looking at people uh, and their ability to stay connected to the wider world almost entirely through the U.S. post. So no matter where you're living, you're able to have a post office nearby. You're able to get letters from, say, your sister living in Ohio. You're able to subscribe to magazines from Chicago, newspapers from New York. You can send oftentimes uh, money orders or small uh, gifts through the mail. So the mail becomes this infrastructure through which settler colonialism is facilitated. It's not the causing or driving factor of indigenous dispossession and settler colonial expansion but it is kind of greasing the wheels for so many uh, white settlers to again, occupy this land. How aware were the postmasters, these part-time uh, entrepreneurs running these pop-up post offices around the West? How aware were they, do you think, of the uh, incomparable injustice that they were participating in? Postmasters specifically, uh, I wouldn't say they were. Uh, many white settlers were frankly not. Uh, some were, some were, um, but the vast majority are not necessarily seeing this as a great injustice. And they subscribe to views that obviously are incredibly racist. And, and the did idea they participate is in any sense in this Holocaust? We had a show uh, last month with Wendy Lauer, the, um, the historian of the Holocaust, uh, it's uh, uh, she's just written a book about a photograph of uh, a murder in in the Ukraine. 
And one of the things she found from the book, uh, from her research, is that in this photograph, there weren't full-time SS mass killers, but just essentially regular German soldiers who participated in the Holocaust. Is the same true when it comes to the West and the kind of, I guess, part-time colonialists that inhabited the country and seized the land? There definitely are. Uh, and I should say that I don't have specific examples of, you know, Postmaster going out and massacring a bunch of native people. Uh, but this more settler-based violence, especially in places like California, the Pacific Northwest, it's not just the U.S. Army that's waging these wars. There's oftentimes private groups of vigilantes, uh, local and state militias are being gathered together to effectively wage wars of extermination. And I would be shocked if across all of those different episodes, there wasn't at least a couple postmasters that were participating, right? Because it was such a widespread profession. But again, I think there's a little bit of a gray area there where you don't necessarily want to link, you know, the U.S. Post is this driving force for expulsion. Uh, it's more of a, a subtle form of state power that, again, is kind of accelerating this larger process. Uh, Cameron, let's fast forward a bit. By uh, 1877, uh, you, you write the project of greater reconstruction had reached a kind of culmination in the West. Um, but you say that in terms of the post office, it was still uh, chaotic. Um, it still reflected the decentralized nature of, of infrastructure there. Uh, and in your book, you, you talk about a kind of ongoing debate about the post office in the 20th century, whether it should be uh, a technocracy or something more decentralized. Um, what has happened since 1877 in terms of the debate about what a, what the best kind of post service, post office exists in America? Sure. So the, the dominant model in the 1800s during this time period for the vast majority of the country, outside of cities, uh, if you lived in rural America, which most Americans did, this model was chaotic. It was highly unregulated. It was decentralized. There wasn't a lot of oversight. And probably not surprisingly, especially in the West, where there's even less oversight, you do see instances of mass fraud developing around, in particular, the contracting system for stagecoach companies that defrauded the government, winning these inflated contracts to carry the mail. And beginning in the kind of late the 1880s or so, accelerating the 1890s and early 1900s, there's this wider push by reformers to try to run governments more efficiently run it by technocrats, by people with expertise. It's part of the larger progressive era in American history. And you see this happening at all sorts of levels of government, uh, probably most strongly at the municipal and local level, but all the way up to the federal as well. And so by the 1910s, you're seeing more and more calls for the postal system to be run as a civil service bureaucracy rather than this decentralized, unstable, somewhat chaotic, system uh, that existed in the 1800s. And to some extent that does end up happening. There are a lot more uh, career civil servants that start working in the post office department and it does start to transform into this bureaucracy. But I think what's interesting to me at least, as we were talking about before, things not changing are ways in which this older model continue to echo into the 20th century. And so you have the contracting system continuing when airplanes become a mode of transportation for the mail, there's contracting scandals there. Um, and even today, 
as the U.S. Post is facing all of these budgetary uh, crises, some postmaster, uh, previous postmaster general, actually called for the institution of what were called village post offices, which is where a general store owner in a rural town would get paid a small amount by the federal government to have some PO boxes and distribute mail. This is exactly the same model that was in the 1800s. And so I think it's dangerous for us to assume this kind of relentless upward march in the federal government and the US post of greater efficiency, more technocratic management, and more bureaucracy. I think these older models continue to subtly shape the way uh, the way the US post and the wider federal government is administered. Yeah, you note in the book that uh, by uh, the, the beginning of the 21st century, there's a funding crisis in the US post service. Um, and you explicitly compare this with the emergence uh, of the internet. Um, and you suggest that this was begun under Reagan, and which uh, occurred to me, there was a piece in the Post this morning, Biden is an FDR, he's the anti-Reagan. Was the foundations of undermining and defunding the postal service, both in the East and the West, was it begun by Reagan? It actually started earlier. Um, I would say the big turning point was in the 1960s, there was a series of these very high profile crises, uh, particularly in the Chicago post office, where uh, mail got backed up for weeks at a time. It was kind of a ripple effect in the system. Uh, there was aging infrastructure that needed to be replaced that wasn't. And uh, they held a commission in the late 1960s that related, resulted in what was called the Postal Reorganization Act, which is a really boring name for a hugely consequential piece of legislation. And what it did, is, that did it was it set up the modern U.S. Postal Service. And it set this up in what uh, one historian has termed a kind of uh, government business jackalope, where the U.S. Postal System is cut off from taxpayer funds. So it's not you know, subsidized by taxpayers. It's expected to be fully self-sufficient, run like a business, but at the same time, and this is what just blows my mind, is that it's still required by law, by this act, and it's been reinforced over the decades, uh, that it needs to provide service in rural parts of the country, even in places that are not profitable to do so. So obviously Congress members from rural parts of the country are always gonna be protecting their local post offices. And that's not the primary reason, but that's one of the many reasons uh, in which this kind of hybrid model ends up hamstringing the ability of the US postal system to run itself profitably, but at the same time, it's cut off from taxpayer funding. So that actually started in the 1970s. But, so, but you're not in favor of, um, of, of, of sort of re-centralizing re the, not that it ever was centralized, refunding the post office as a centralized state system. Uh, I found an interesting piece from 2012 from Jonas Sarah in the New York Times, which says that the post office has been shackled by Congress. It just needs to be unshackled and run itself in a decentralized way. Would you agree with Nasera on that front? Uh, yes and no. So I think Congress has done some stuff that has really hurt the postal system. In particular, what, uh, what they're referring to is a 2006 law that required the U.S. postal system to pre-fund retirement benefits for employees. Yeah, and Nasera, to be fair to Nasera, he agrees with you. He, call, he calls uh, 
he said that this was insanely imposed by Congress. So he's not on your, he, he, he's very much in your camp in that front. Yep, yep. Uh, so in that sense, I think there's meddling from Congress that has really hurt the ability of the Post to innovate, to do new things, uh, and to uh, kind of fix a lot of its budgetary problems. At the same time, I think there needs to be a really genuine conversation and active policy decision making about what we want the U.S. Post to look like in the 21st century, and specifically, you know, in 2021. Um, this is a very different era from even 30, 40 years ago. And things have changed. I think the U.S. Post probably needs to make some changes uh, as well. So I'm not saying that we need to go back to a world in which everyone is sending letters, right? This is completely changed. And I think the U.S. Post needs to figure out what to do. But right now, there's not this kind of uh, conscious decision about what it's going to be. Instead, there's all these kind of hearkening back to, oh, it just needs to be privatized and run as a private business, or it needs to be completely public like the founders intended. And for me, it's less about what the founders intended and more about what we as the United States want this public service to look like today. Um, I happen to be in favor of running this as a public service, not as some self-sufficient private business model, um, but it's not an easy issue for sure. And I think right now it's just kind of uh, muddling through because there's a lack of these really uh, clear decision-making on what its future is going to be. Uh, Cameron, the, the big gorilla in the room we haven't discussed is the, uh, the internet. Is the internet in many ways simply a replacement? Um, it itself grew in a decentralized, higgledy-piggledy, chaotic way, made some people very rich, created all sorts of injustice, but has changed our lives incomparably, like the post service. Um, what does the success and the problems with the internet teach us about the future of the American post office? I think in some ways there are definitely parallels between the two. I think one of the big dividing differences is that the US Post uh, grew specifically as a public service. This idea of universal, uh, universal service being provided by the federal government to its citizens is very different from the internet, which from the beginning, right, was privatized. And although it was basically uh, helped along by massive public subsidies and investments, um, ultimately we have private internet providers. Um, so I think that's one of the big dividing differences here. And I think it's easy to think, you know, especially for me, I'm sitting here as a professor. I have a stable Internet connection. I can teach over Zoom. I would say if the last year uh, plus has taught us anything, it's that not everyone has access to that. I have a lot of students, for instance, that uh, have to join these Zoom classes from their phone in a McDonald's parking lot because they don't have Wi-Fi at home. Right. And that's, I think, the difference between providing a universal public service versus having it run uh, by private companies. So I think that's like one difference that we need to think about as well. Cameron, finally, um, there was an interesting thing going on in New York City. Uh, uh, the old post office has been turned into a 1.6 billion transformation uh, of a, a glass field, steel glass and marble cathedral as, as a train hall. Uh, in, in Manhattan, here we have the image. Um, to what extent was the post office an ideal manifestation of public space? And can the, old uh, can the public space of the old post office be transformed into 21st century public space, physical or perhaps even digital? 
Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I had not actually seen that that article, so I will go look it up uh, look it up later here. Um, but I think what's fascinating to me about the U.S. postal system is it is really one of those institutions that, especially in the 1800s and even today, is effectively everywhere. It's so embedded into our lives and into our communities. So everyone, I think, has a common experience of going to their local post office. And that might be very different. The New York City post office looks completely different from a smaller post office in a rural town in Montana. But these spaces, especially earlier in the 1800s and well into the 1900s, did serve as these community hubs. It's where people gathered to catch up with neighbors, trade gossip, get news, uh, trade kind of political uh, events that are happening as well. And because even today, uh, the US Post does have this foothold in so many different communities, I think somewhere around 30,000 post offices across the country, uh, that in some ways I think presents a real opportunity for rethinking what those spaces could be. And that's why you see a lot of people uh, thinking about, you know, can the US Postal Service offer a kind of postal savings or banking system for people that do not have access necessarily uh, to private banks, right? And that's a really interesting idea. Are there other kinds of services that the US Post can take advantage of because of this geographical expansiveness that it continues to have. And so that I think is, a, is, a, is an interesting uh, way to think about what the US Post might be moving forward. Well, I think your point, Cameron, on uh, uh, innovation is an important one. Uh, you remind us that the po in your book uh, that the post office was always innovative, particularly in the West. And I think your work, um, particularly in the gossipernetworks.com, uh, is really amazing. I mean, I've just got a, a few of the images here. So you, as a historian, are also uh, innovative. You not only have written this wonderful book, uh, Paper Trails, the U.S. Post and the Making of the American West, but you manifested a lot of your research online. So congratulations there. In addition, I know you're in Denver at the moment uh, uh, in these strange times in April 2021. Uh, Cameron, we're still a little stuck inside. In addition to your new book, what else should people be reading? Uh, a couple different things. Uh, so I am actually currently reading a fantastic book called South to Freedom by Alice uh, Baumgartner. And it's a story of uh, a little bit earlier pre-Civil War, and in particular, uh, what you can think of as a Southern Underground Railroad down to Mexico. Uh, a second book that I'd really recommend just came out. It's called I've Been Here All the While by Elena Roberts. And this is a story uh, in a history of black Americans in the, after the Civil War occupying Indian territory in present day Colorado. And it really changes uh, how I've been thinking about this particular place and its, uh, its history. And so that's Elena Roberts's, it's been here all the while. Well, uh, Cameron Blevins, you've brought history, a, a rather arcane and in some people's minds, I guess, boring subject really to life. You've made it relevant and interesting, both in your book and in your online work. Congratulations on that. Uh, keep well in these strange times. And at some point, we'll look forward to having you back on the show. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you so much, Andrew. It was a pleasure, uh, pleasure talking with you.